What's up, everybody? My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at Renaissance, and we are in week two of our series on real love. So I got a confession to make. Uh, So my wife just celebrated 39 years old this past Thursday. We had a really great time celebrating. Shout out to a a mother uh, who gave us a day away from the kids. That was a, a huge gift. Uh, my wife is not really big on gifts, but she really is big on, on cards. Now, I got to be honest, uh, I really do struggle to get her cards, not because I don't think it's important, but because of two reasons. Number one, like I always forget until the last minute. Now, it's not a problem on her birthday because there's still a decent selection of birthday cards, but on Valentine's Day, that is different. I'm usually there like at 5 p.m. on the struggle bus with like three other guys. I just nod at each other like... <laughs> This is where we are. And a lot of times, like, there's not even any cards left in English. So I just grab her one in Spanish. <laughs> El amor que tenemos. Es... I'm like, that's the romance language, baby. That's why I got you that one. But the, the other reason why I, I really struggle to get her cards is because, like, I fundamentally disagree with the way some cards are written. So this past birthday, I was looking at the card section, and I saw this one joint. It was beautiful, bedazzled up and all of that. And it said, my one and only love who will have my heart forever. I was like, nah, put that one back. (laughs) The next one was the the love of my life. Put that one back as well. Now, some of you, most of you know my story and Jessica's story. Uh, We are both widowed, and this is our second marriage. And Jessica... Uh, about 10, 11 years ago, got the wonderful opportunity to marry a man named Jerron. And by all accounts, I've never got the privilege to meet him, but a wonderful man, loved Jesus, and a phenomenal person. Uh, They had an amazing wedding and a great time. And I bet you, if you would have asked Jessica a decade ago, who was, uh, more than 11, 12 years ago, who was the love of her life, maybe at that point she would have said Jerron. And for me, uh, in 2009, I married a beautiful, amazing, godly woman named Danielle, and we had a great wedding in Baltimore with friends and family, and uh, our life, me and Jessica's life together, is now a, a culmination of so many different life, ex- life experiences that make it impossible for me to answer that question. So I'll ask you, and I'll ask you the impossible question, who is the love of my life? Is it Danielle or is it Jessica? Who was the, lo- who was the love of Jessica's life? Is it Jerron? Or is it me? Now, that's an impossible question for a number of reasons. But the fundamental reason it's impossible to answer is because there is no answer to it. There is no such thing as a soulmate. There is no such thing as this perfect person that, who is meant for, to fulfill your entire life. One author says it like this, a man named St- Stanley Harawas. He says, it is, the, it is an illusion that if we find our one true soulmate, Everything wrong with us will be healed. But that makes this lover that we seek into God. And no human being can live up to that. One of the challenges to us to be in thriving relationships is that we have an overly idealistic view of love and of marriage. Now, there's certainly a lot of very practical things that make relationships fulfilling, particularly marriage is very fulfilling. Uh, When I first met Jessica, I remember really us clicking on so many different things. And in a lot of ways, we are very compatible about a great number uh, of things. But compatibility does not mean that you are someone's soulmate. 
a lot of times when you ask people what they are looking for in someone, what is their soulmate, a lot of times people will think about physical attractiveness and sexual chemistry. For others, if you ask them what it means to be compatible, for someone to be their true love, what they actually mean is for someone to take them exactly how they are and not seek to change them. Both men and women today want a marriage in which they can receive emotional and sexual satisfaction from someone who will let them be themselves. They want a spouse who is fun, intellectually stimulating, sexually attractive, with many common interests, who, on top of it, is supportive of their personal goals and the way they are living right now. And if your desire is for a spouse who will not demand a lot of change for you, then you are looking for a spouse also who is almost completely pulled together, someone who is very low maintenance, who will not require or demand significant change. You are therefore searching for an ideal person. Now, a lot of times we'll talk to people who are single or dating and they just wonder, man, how do I, how do I know that I'm with, with the one? And if you're searching for someone who will leave you and take you exactly how, how you are and leave you exactly how you are, then you're not really searching for someone to, to do love with. Here's the good news of the gospel that we'll get to a little bit later on as well. God loves you so much that he loves and embraces and pursues you exactly how you are today. I don't think we've understood the, how profound that is. There is no finish line to get to before God will find you desirable or acceptable. But in God's great and profound love, his love will not keep you where you are. He loves us as we are, but his love will not keep us where we are. And in so many different times and ways, we seek someone who will just let us, let us be. Now, one of the biggest challenges for married couples is that one day you will find out that the person you have married lives beneath what you are hoping for. That love is, is difficult. Now, here is a lie from the pit of hell that I hope to save some frustration, disappointment, and potentially even maybe even save your marriage. One of the lies from the pit of hell is this, that love shouldn't be hard. It should just come naturally. That's not love that you're searching for. That's not the type of love that we see about in the Bible. That is not real love. Real love is not easy. Real love does not come naturally. When you think about love in the Bible, one of the scriptures that has probably comforted me the most as a Christian is a scripture in Romans 5 where it says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. God proves his love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for the ungodly. That is not easy or natural. If we are to be people relationally who love well, whether that is with friendship, whether that's with coworkers, or whether that is with a spouse, let us never pursue the road of ease and comfort. That is not love. Now, last week we talked about love and the definitions of love that we've gotten through the ages in society and some of these definitions of love. What we, what we think about when we say the word, the first word that usually comes to mind is affection or storge. Uh, storge is something that you feel for someone. And storge is a good thing. It is good to feel affection for someone. But affection comes and goes and comes again. If you are searching for affection to carry you through decades of marriage, I have some bad news for you. Affection is not something that can be relied upon. It can be created and it can be lost and it can be created again. 
But what we are talking about with real love is, is not affection, because if you are being honest with yourself, if you are being honest with other people, there are times where you do not feel affection towards someone that you are called to love. Uh, the, the most profound thing about love is love is a command, not an emotion. When the Bible says to love one another, it is not saying to feel something inside of yourself. It is saying to do something, to be something to someone despite how you feel in any given moment. One of the things that I have seen tank marriages is when people let their affections guide them instead of letting love guide them. And when you let your affections guide you, you will hit a point where you just stop feeling it one day. And if that is what you are relying upon to be the thing, you might want to call it quits. Another type of love that we see in scripture is phileo, which is friendship, people bonding over similar interests. Uh, but one of the challenges in life, and certainly in marriage, is that we, we become different people because we're always growing and, and, and evolving a, a, as people. And you might not share the same things in, in common with someone anymore. Eros or romance, and certainly this is a good thing. All of these, affection and friendship and romance, these are all wonderful and beautiful things in their place, so long as you don't confuse it with real love. The love that we see in scripture is agape. And agape is not born out of emotions, feelings, familiarity, or attraction, but from the will and as a choice. Agape requires faithfulness, commitment, and sacrifice without expecting anything in return. Later in one of his books, Stanley Harowitz talks about how destructive it is to you in pursuing the one or pursuing someone, certainly in a romantic, in a, for marriage and relationship, is this self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family are primarily institutions of self-fulfillment. If I get this person, if I have this family, then I will be fulfilled. Now, our marriage is good. We're going to talk about marriage more specifically today and later in the series very concretely. But marriage is not an ultimate thing. As a matter of fact, when you read through the authors of Scripture, uh, the authors never talk as highly about marriage as uh, it is talked about today in America and certainly even in Western Christianity as a whole. It's a good thing, but in Scripture they were like, yo, if you don't want to get married, great. Stay like that. Don't get married. Because marriage is not about fulfillment. Marriage is actually about obligation. And if you want that obligation, take it. But it is not something that is meant to fulfill you. Scripture assumes that you and I could find a fulfillment and a joy and a satisfaction and a purpose and a mission in life that is deeply fulfilling with or without a spouse. But moving forward, if we do choose to pursue marriage, and for a lot of you who want that, we're going to get some concrete things, we will always marry the wrong person. You will always marry someone who has certain flaws and challenges that keep them from being the one and we'll get to that in just a bit. But before I get to that, I actually want to just talk really practically and answer that question. Like, so how do you determine if the person that you are dating, okay, let's just say they're not the one, and we're throwing that language out the window, how should I know if I should pursue them more intentionally or allow them to pursue me more intentionally and maybe even marry them one day? Uh, there's some guidance we get in Scripture from 1 Corinthians 7, and Paul says two things. One, he says, basically, as you wish and in the Lord. So two things that I want us to think about. The first is, I think we have a really bad understanding of God's will in our life. And I've seen this question a hundred times when it, with respect to relationships, with jobs, with cities. 
And we think to ourselves, God, where is the one place? Where is the one job? Who was the one person that you want me to be with? But Scripture does not give us a God who guides us like that. God in Genesis 3 says, there's all of these trees, and I want you to feel free to eat from any one of these trees, but don't eat from this one. Now, imagine going to God like, God, can I eat from this tree? Yes. Can I eat from this tree? Again, yes. Can I eat from this tree? Yes. If you went around to every single tree, God would say, which one do you want to eat from? Eat from it. But just don't eat from this one. God gives us freedom in our life that as long as we are following in his ways and ad- ad- adhering to his prohibitions, saying the things we should not do, it's free to choose. Do you want to do that? Do you want to be around this person? Do you want to give them agape love? Do you want to give them your commitment, your uh, sacrificial love without expecting anything in return? Do you want to do that? Then great, you should pursue that. So number one, I think we misunderstand what love is and commitment, and we misunderstand the freedom that God has given us. Now, one of the best ways for you to ascertain whether or not you want to be with someone or pursue that or let them pursue you, particularly in romantic relationships, is to invite your friends and family into the process super early. And I mean as early as possible. Maybe not the first date, that'd be awkward. But (laughs) date two or three, you want to bring your friends in. Let me ask you a question. If I were to show you some jeans off the rack that I'm thinking about buying, I haven't bought them yet, and I say, hey, do you like these jeans? You will give me a really honest answer. I haven't bought them. I haven't committed to them. Nothing needs to happen in order for me to not have them. If I get the jeans, get them tailored, say that I threw away the receipt, and then I say, well, what do you think about these jeans that I love? You'd be like, man, unless they're like cut off at the knees, you'd be like, well, I mean, they're straight, I guess. You're not going to give me your honest answer because I've already committed to them. So many people in relationships wait like a year before they introduce someone to their friends and they say, yo, you're going to love Reggie. I love him. (laughs) You're going to love him. And then you bring him around your friends and your family and they're like, unless they really don't like him, you've gassed them up so much that they're not going to tell you the truth. If you want them to tell you the truth, bring him in. Date number two. Listen, we just started kicking it. Me and Shorty, me and homeboy, we just started talking. Tell me what you think. At that point, they will give you a really honest answer, and then you can determine, do I want to pursue something like this? Number one. Number two, and I know this is a little unpopular in a lot of different ways for some weighted and heavy reasons. Um, If you are a follower of Jesus, I don't want you to lose out on hope that God can bring someone into your life who also follows Jesus. Your core beliefs in life, you should be with someone who also has your core beliefs in life. You shouldn't have 38 core beliefs. You should have like four. Those core beliefs should be someone that you align yourself with. And if your core belief is following Jesus, living on mission for him, being with someone who does not share that is not going to advance that in your life. I get the fear that if you hold on and wanting someone who really follows Jesus, you're going to be left holding the bag by yourself, standing alone. Number one, that's just not true. That is absolutely not true. As someone who does premarital counseling and all these different things, the fear that there are not enough good men, that there's not enough good women, is massively overstated. I'm not saying it's easy, and please don't hear that, and I realize my privilege in saying that. I'm not saying it's easy. However, even in Renaissance, I know people be like, man, there ain't no dudes here at Renaissance. Everybody's married. I, I made, a couple years ago, I made a list. I, this is like four or five years ago. I made a list of like 75 dudes who are unmarried, who I'm like, yo, these are dudes who really rock with Jesus. They're not married. 
and they would certainly make a great person. Now, real quick, fellas, let me talk to you all for a second. One of the things I've heard so many times from men at Renaissance is that I don't want to date women in Renaissance. So you'll date someone who goes to a different church but not here at Renaissance, and I want to, not even gently, I want to correct that, that notion. One, for some of you, it means that you don't have good intentions. And you're trying to be in these streets and don't want to get caught. But for others of you, there's a lot of you who have really, really good intentions, and you don't want to be known as the person who dates around at Renaissance. And sometimes, I've heard this story a dozen times, someone from Renaissance sees a woman, he takes her off for coffee, they just go out for coffee, next Sunday he shows up in church and everybody's like, oh, I heard you and so-and-so together. He's like, how did, my, how did us going out for coffee to get the chance to know you better get out in all of these streets? It's not loving people well as your brother in Christ to put your business all the way out there, to put their business all the way out there. Allow people to pursue you, to be friends, and to keep that in confidence so that people will not... Listen, the Bible says to not bear false witness against someone. And you are bearing false witness against someone if you're making them out to be someone who's doing anything other than what they're doing. If they invite you out for coffee or for lunch, that's all it was. It might hopefully grow to something else, but please keep that between you and the other person in all cases. But I think, I think it is a wonder, there's no better place to shoot your shot than right here. So right now, everybody, no, I'm kidding, don't do it. <laughs> Y'all would never come back if I did that. Uh, so I, wa I want y'all to do that. Um, and as, as we think about this life, whether you're dating, you're divorced, uh, you're married, you're widowed, whatever it is, here's the thing I want us to, to take home today. Whoever it is that you find yourself with as a friend, as a coworker, as a boss, potentially as a spouse, they are never going to be the one because of sin. Now, sin has impacted this entire world so that this world is broken and does not work the way that it's supposed to. When we first moved into our apartment, I was extremely thrilled to get this one refrigerator that has an ice maker. And y'all don't know how much joy that gives me to have an ice maker in that fridge. But a couple weeks ago, months ago now, actually, the ice maker in the, in the fridge broke. And that's been a lot of weeping and gnashing and teeth in our house. <laughs> and the refrigerator still works for the most part. The freezer still freezes. The refrigerator still cools things. It's functional. Like, we can work with it. It just is not doing everything that it could be doing. It's not perfect. Now, the effects of sin in the broken world mean that we are getting along. People are moving forward. We are accomplishing some or many things that God intended for us to do. But that means that since this world is broken by sin, that we will not ever operate perfectly the way that God intended for us to be in its fullness. And that means that we need to take people who have been impacted by the, by the effects of sin and to not judge them, to not critique them unnecessarily, to not gloss over what they're doing. Now, Michael Crawford a couple years ago did a, a workshop for us on relationships, and he highlighted four categories that for me were transformative in the way that I see people and do relationships with others. And what makes relationships hard, number one, is an overly idealistic understanding of relationships. We think that they are perfect people. They are not. Number two, it's because we are with people who deal with sin, 
weaknesses, wounds, and damages. These are all four very serious and real things, but all four of these are very different things. You should never treat these four things the same way. So what is sin? Sin is missing the mark. If we were to say that runners run and painters paint, then it's equally true to say that sinners will sin. Everybody you are in relationship with, as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not some, but all. 1 John 3 and 4 says, defines what sin is. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is a transgression against God's written laws recorded in Scripture. Sin is not breaking your, your, your um, preferences. You have preferences, but your preferences are not someone else's problem. Sin is actually transgressing God's, God's laws. Now, I think we're too reductionistic. We put everything that's wrong about someone in the sinful category, and that is absolutely not true. Uh, for me and Jess, our perfect day off is quite different. My perfect day off starts early in the morning when we get out the house and we do a couple of things for a couple of hours and then I come home and I sleep. And I watch Netflix for like two hours or I search Netflix for an hour and 45 minutes and I watch for 15. And then I have just hours and hours of not talking to anybody. Jessica's ideal day is we get up, we'll say we're leaving at 10, we leave at noon, that's not a shot. And then we'll stay out until the minute, 32 seconds before we have to be back, she wants to be out that entire time. So if we had a babysitter until 7, she wants to be out until 6.59, walking in the door with no downtime in between. Now, we're very compatible on a lot of different things. We are very different on this. It is not sinful for me to want one thing with respect to our day off or how, how, how holidays are spent. Should we do it in one place the same time every time? Or should we do it in different places every time? These things are not recorded in Scripture. These are just preferences. And your preferences should never be put on someone else as they are God's laws. They are not. But there are real things that happen to us in relationships, real sins that people do to us. One of the challenges that we have is that we don't expect people to do this. And I think it's pretty naive to expect sinners to not sin against us. And hopefully people don't sin egregiously against us, but they will sin against us. And the correct response to sin in a relationship, a real transgression of God's law, is two things. Number one, gentle confrontation. Gentle confrontation. Galatians 6 and 1. If anyone is caught in a sin, you which are spiritual, restore them with a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness means still confronting them, but removing all unnecessary weight behind your words and behind your actions. Number two, after there has been gentle confrontation, sin requires that we forgive. I don't think there's a, a more under-practiced spiritual discipline in the American church than forgiveness. Forgiveness is not something that is easy. Uh, Peter asked Jesus one time, Jesus, how many times should we forgive someone who has sinned against us? Seven times? That's a lot of times. <laughs> Seventy times seven. Jesus wasn't teaching us math equations. He was telling us about the unlimited nature of forgiveness that needs to happen in relationships. If you are with someone, if you're hoping to build a life with someone for decades, 
if you're hoping to build deep friendship with people, if you're hoping to build real relationship, real community here at Renaissance with other people, they are going to sin against you. And it is your pathway to spiritual growth and development and emotional maturity to learn how to forgive people who have wronged you. Seriously. It's not a sign to run away. It is a sign to certainly learn how to forgive. Now, I also want to be very, very clear. I'm not talking about staying in abusive relationships where someone is harming you. I think in those cases, you need to call 911 and then email the pastor. I do not want us to, to, to gloss over like really serious, dangerous things. God's will for your life is to not be killed by someone who wants to hurt you. That is not God's will for your life. But in cases where our physical safety is not at imminent risk, and in 99.9% .9 of the cases of our life where people sin against us, it requires our forgiveness. Now, this is not something that can happen overnight, but forgiveness requires these two things. It requires that we rehearse our forgiveness from Christ and refuse to rehearse their offense. Over and over and over again, this might take you years of you rehearsing your forgiveness in Christ and then refusing to rehearse their offense. Sometimes this is best done with a therapist, with trusted friends and community, but ultimately, this is going to lead you towards true forgiveness. It takes time. Number two, so number one is sin. Number two is our weaknesses. Weaknesses are just our natural inabilities. We all have them. We all have things that we want to do. We just don't do them. In Scripture, we see what Jesus does and how he responds to, to weaknesses. In Matthew 26, 41, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is about to go through the worst night of his life. He's about to be crucified the next day. And Jesus goes to his friends, his disciples, and says, yo, can y'all please pray with me just this one hour? Over and over and over again, Jesus finds his friends asleep. Now, Jesus asked them to do something. They did not do it. His response is profound. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 26, 41. Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. Here's what he tells them. Your spirit is willing. I know it is, but your flesh is weak. You want to do that. You wanted to stay awake, but you couldn't. You're just weak. We all have weaknesses, and as we relate to people with weaknesses, we are told in Scripture to not judge them, to not be intolerant of them, to not be frustrated with their weaknesses, to not be annoyed or angry at their weaknesses, but rather, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 14, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn the idle, encourage the disheartened, help the weak. And be patient with everyone. What would it mean if you treated someone's weaknesses like sin? Where scripture is not calling you to confront them, but to help them. I think a lot of relationships would be immediately bolstered if we started looking at people in the way that God looks at them. And saying, this is just a weakness that they have. And to love them, again, not affection, but agape, sacrificial love for them, means helping them. Even at my own expense in my life. God help us if we treat weaknesses the same way we treat sins. Another category of why you will never find a perfect soulmate, and not just sin, not just weaknesses, but people have also been wounded. Wounds are temporary injuries, something that has been done to us. A lot of times uh, you'll hear, you'll talk to someone about their childhood and the way their parents dealt with them, and some of the cruelest, most harsh, most insensitive, most damaging things have been done to us by our parents, even at times where we didn't intend to do it. You know, there's certainly been times in my own home where I'm like, man, listen, I'm not going to get too angry. 
I'm not going to get too angry. I'm not going to get too angry. And then 40 seconds later, I'm like yelling, and I I see my six-year-old, and I see his face shrink. And it feels terrible to wound someone, even when it's not my intention to do so. All of us, in dealing with people, we have been wounded by people. And these are real injuries. And if you touch a stove and you get burned from it, what's the immediate response and reaction? We want to hold it. We want to cover it. And a lot of us, in our relationships, we're dealing with people who have been wounded. And instead of saying, hey, 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 let let me see your hand. Let me see what has happened to you. With the purpose of helping find healing, we're judging them. Why, why can't you be like me? I, I don't do it like that. We're, we're wishing we were with someone who didn't have that wound. Instead of judging people or hoping away something or wanting someone to be better, God invites us into a journey, not of judgment, but to help them be healed. Jesus, when he was telling a parable, they asked him the question, Jesus, what does it mean to love? Jesus then tells this parable about what it means to love your neighbor, to love someone else. And he talks about the story known as the Good Samaritan. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, it is someone who at their own risk, who at their own detriment goes out to help someone and he bandages the person's wounds who have been beaten up on the road, who have been wounded by other people. He bandaged them and he gave his money to help them out. To deal with someone who has been wounded, to hear these things that someone has been wounded, It is an invitation from God to join in their healing process, to listen empathetically, to walk alongside them and ask them the question, what do they need to recover healing? For you who might be wounded by a great deal of things, I think the question to you is, do you want to be healed? Jesus asked this question to a man, which seems like a a weird question. Do you want to be healed? But do you want to go through the uncomfortable process of what it takes for you to find wholeness and healing? So, number one, sins. Number two, weaknesses. Number three, wounds. These wounds take time to heal. Uh, and w- one thing about this, one big qu- uh, switch that we need to make in our life, instead of asking what's wrong with someone, we need to ask what happened to them. That's a much different question. If you see a behavior that is unhealthy or harmful to your relationship, Instead of just thinking to yourself, yo, what's wrong with them? They're always doing this. Ask yourself the question and potentially even ask them what happened to them. You might come to a different conclusion and answer after that. Uh, so number one, sin. Number two, weaknesses. Number three, wounds. Number four, four is damages. Four, these are, these are not temporary injuries. These are permanent injuries. Permanent injuries are not going to change. These need grace and hope. There's a story about... Um, Uh, Saul and Jonathan in 2 Samuel 4, it says this, Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son whose feet were crippled. Now, here's how he got damaged. He was five years old when the report about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nanny picked him up and fled. But as she was hurrying to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. I practiced that name like 10 times this morning. (laughs) Now, Mephibosheth's damage had nothing to do with his fault. He was five years old. He was innocent. He was being carried and he was dropped. In a lot of ways, people and sin in this world has picked us up and dropped us. And there are some things that people have, real things, that are never going to go away. And this is not dependent on how mature you are spiritually. In 2 Corinthians 12, it says this. This is a man named Paul who wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament. It says, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. Now, many scholars are thinking that Paul is talking about an incurable eye condition that left him with very poor 
uh, vision or potential even partial blindness. So he pleaded with the Lord over and over and over again that it would leave him. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, and persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, damages result in an inability to do something in a relationship, which can lead to hopelessness. Uh, the negative way to, to deal with damages are avoidance and neglect, but our response should be compassion. We should offer hope because our life is not defined by our damages. Now, there are certain traumas that people have experienced um, in their childhood, in their life. There are mental health issues in life that are just permanent damages. And don't treat someone's damages like their sin because they are not. Don't treat them like a choice because they are not. If you want to destroy Jordan, I've talked about having, uh, you know, generalized anxiety disorder. If you want to destroy me, man, judge me for being, for dealing with anxiety. Judge me harshly for doing that. Instead of offering me hope and a way to be able to function in life, uh, to move forward. Now, with damages, although they may not be healed completely, there are certainly a lot of things we can do with the support of those around us who love us, who truly agape love us, that will help us to thrive in certain situations. The best thing that my friends and my wife do for me when I'm really struggling with anxiety is just to sit down and listen to me, say something, a fear that's inside of me that doesn't make any sense at all half of the time, but it's real. Instead of trying to talk me out of it and brush me aside, they sit down and they listen to me. Now, if you're gonna be in a relationship with anybody, they're gonna have real sin, real weaknesses, sometimes wounds, and sometimes damages. And we should never, in a million, billion years, treat these as all the same because God does not treat them the same. Here's how God responds to your sins, your weaknesses, your wounds, and your damages. God responds to your sin with the gospel. Romans 8 and 1 said, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God responds to your sin with forgiveness. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has separated you from your sins. If God is for you, if God is for you, who can be against you? Who can lay any charge against God's elect, God's chosen people? Better question, what can separate you from the love of Christ, that is love of God that is found in Christ Jesus? Nothing in all of creation, neither height nor depth, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate you from God's love in Christ. God responds to your sin by erasing it. Not just some of it, not just the stuff that's not that bad, but all of it. He nails it to the cross, canceling the debt. God is merciful to us in our weaknesses. God looks at you and says, I know there are things that you want to do, and your weaknesses keep you from doing them, and I understand. I know your spirit is willing, but your flesh, your flesh is weak. With our wounds, Jesus comes to us and says, I want to heal you. I want you to be brave enough to go through the journey of healing. I want you to open up to your community, to counseling, to therapy, all the things that are available. I want you to open up in prayer. I want you to bring these things to me and stop pushing them down and pretending like I can't truly heal you of them. I am the God who heals you, he says in scripture. Do we want to be healed? Jesus invites us to bring to him all of our wounds. And Jesus is compassionate for our, uh, for our damages. How his power is perfected in your weakness. Your damages prevent you from doing a lot of things. 
Your damages limit you in so many different ways. Your damages do not limit God. They are prime, fertile soil for God to do amazing things. Out of your damages, God can, out of the ashes of what has broken us in life, out of your inabilities, God can make an ability. His power is perfected in your weakness. And God says to you in your damages, I will make something beautiful out of your life if you'll let me. As we're thinking about our life and our friendships and our relationships and our marriages, for those of us who are married and the pursuits that we have, let us be gracious to ourselves. Let us receive God's grace to us and give that same grace out, whether it's our sin, our wounds, our weaknesses, or our damages. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, I, I pray for real love to saturate our life. I pray for us to make firm commitments, sacrificial commitments to love people. God, not for self-fulfillment. I pray for us to find healing from the ways that we have been wounded. And I pray for maturity for our weaknesses. I pray for compassion for ourselves and for others for our weaknesses. And I pray that we would see people the way that you intend us to see them. God, above all, help us to see ourselves not as despised or rejected by you, but that rather you were despised and rejected so we can be embraced by you. You love us and you know us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.